Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. As I've already said, it's a real joy for me to be here. Uh, We are going to read from Isaiah, a very familiar passage, uh, appropriate for missions conferences, Isaiah chapter 6, and uh, beginning at verse 1. This is found on page 689 uh, in the Pew Bibles. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 9 or 10. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and they hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? You're very familiar with this, question, with this passage. Uh, that what I want to focus on today is on the nature of God and how it helps us as we think of the mission of the church. Um, Isaiah was given this call in a crucial year in the life of, uh, of, his, uh, of his people. And um, the king uh, who had reigned for 52 years, Uzziah, a good king at the start and for most of his reign and then got a bit proud and got leprosy and then died. But he had been reigning for 52 years and, uh, and he has died. He was succeeded by a good king, uh, but after that they had two wicked kings. And so it was a bit of a sigh of uncertainty and maybe a lot of negative thinking among the people, uh, 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 among God's people. And at that time, he was given a vision of the glory of God and then sent off to ministry. You know, when I come to Europe, I sense a, 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 a deep sense of disappointment among Christians that the gospel seems to be in decline, the church is in decline, and, and uh, people, it's a great challenge to get the gospel out. And at a time like this, as in the time of Isaiah, One of the greatest needs for the church is to recover 
a vision of who their God is. And that's what we see here. So we see different attitudes, attributes of God, all of which can be really summed up under the word holiness. And uh, the first thing he, we, we read is that he saw the king sitting on a throne. Um, sitting on a throne, of course, suggests that he was, uh, he saw the Lord, sorry. He saw the Lord sitting on a throne. In other words, he was king, that God is king. It talks about the sovereignty of God. God is reigning over history. Several times in the Psalms, you get statements like, the Lord reigns or rules or God reigns. Um, and so uh, Isaiah is reminded of the fact that even though a good king has died, the real king, the real king of history is the Lord who is calling him to serve. And that would have given him boldness to serve God. The opposition may be powerful, but God is more powerful. Therefore, it would be a fool who would disobey God at a time like that. You have a beautiful example of how the, the, the sovereignty of God uh, helped a prophet to be faithful amidst great challenges in 1 Kings 22, where we are told about the, the prophet Micaiah. Um, he was uh, prophesying during the time of Ahab and his wicked uh, wife Jezebel. And uh, Syria had encroached their land from the north. And the king Ahab wanted to send them off. And so he wanted the help of Jehoshaphat, a good righteous king from the southern kingdom of Judea. And um, he, the, the two of them met. It was one of these glorious moments when everyone was in their regalia. And, and, uh, and, he wants, and the, the good king, Jehoshaphat, wants to know whether this proposal that Ahab brought was from God or not. So he asked him, we need to know whether this is God's will. And there were 400 prophets of Ahab who prophesied and said, go and you will win. But uh, Jehoshaphat was a little concerned, a little worried. And so he said, are there no more prophets here? And, and uh, Ahab said, oh, there is a fellow called uh, Micaiah. But he always prophesies negative things about me. And he said, well, let's hear from him too. And so the people went and called him. And when they went to meet him, they said, now you better say go because everyone else is saying go. And if you don't say go, you're going to get into big trouble. And of course, Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, I will say only what God tells me to say. So he goes. And the king asked, should we go? And almost in jest, Micaiah says, go, 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 you'll have victory. And the king knew that he was not serious. This man never uh, uh, agrees with me. He couldn't be serious. So he said, be serious. Tell me what is happening. Oh, what, what, what you say the Lord says. And he said, I saw Israel without a shepherd. In other words, the king is going to be killed. And they are going to lose and, be, and there's going to be destruction. And of course, Ahab said, I told you, this is always what he says. And, um, of course, he, they, they went anyway, and he had died in that war. What is it that gave um, uh, this man so much freedom, so much boldness to speak like this to such a wicked, brutal king? He says in verse 19, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. If God is on the throne... The only thing we need to be afraid of is disobedience. 
I, uh, I have experienced this a lot uh, in our time in Sri Lanka, especially when, when we had these wars going on. We had a war and a revolution going on at the same time. And uh, during this time, we had sent a team to the east of Sri Lanka. And, um, and the, the, uh, the, the, something happened there. There was an Indian army there. And, um, and something happened, and the army went berserk. And they started assaulting the people. The person who had, uh, uh, who had uh, invited us was actually shot dead during that time. And my colleague, Sachi, Sachi called office at that time. And Sachi said, and when the office manager heard his voice, he said, Sachi, where are you? And Sachi said, I'm under the table. And this person got thought is very funny and began to shout to the people, Sachi is under the table. He was under the table because over the table, bullets were flying. And, uh, and the next time we heard from him, he was in hospital because he and the other two young men who had gone with him, all three of them were badly assaulted. And they had head injuries and they called and said, will someone come to pick us up? Because they had gone by public transport, now it was not safe for them to come in public transport. So we had a big problem. Who should go? How should we go? Because we had to go through a, a region that was uh, that, where the southern terrorists were operating. And Youth for Christ at that time had one vehicle, a new van, brand new van. And, um, and people said, don't take that van, whatever happens, because these fellows will take the van uh, on the way. Uh, and then we also uh, wondered who should go. So they told me and my senior most colleague, the two of you don't go because if the two senior people go and something happens to them, what's going to happen to Youth for Christ? And during the time of deciding who should go, how should we go, my stomach was so tight. I was so nervous. I didn't know what to do. We asked people to pray. And after praying, we discerned that it was God's will that myself and my most senior colleagues should go and we should take our own van. The moment the decision was made, it was like a huge burden fell off my back. Because now we knew what God wanted us to do. And if that was what God wanted us to do, then we don't have to be afraid. Now it's up to obey. Of course, we had a lovely time. We had a beautiful trip. And they were, I'm from the Sinhalese race, and those people were from the Tamil race, my colleagues. So they were really touched that we had come. Uh, and they hugged us, cried, and said, we, we must start a ministry here someday. And we have started a ministry here in that place uh, after, subsequently. And so, when you realize that God is sovereign, you can persevere with the call that God has given you. It gives you boldness to obey God. Secondly, it gives you peace in the midst of the storm. You remember Isaiah 26 and verse 3. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And why? Because who God is. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. When we had the war and it was really bad at one time, there was no news coming from the north because all communication channels were broken. And it would come through a letter which would sometimes take three weeks, three, four, five weeks to come uh, from the north to the south. We had sent a young staff worker to the north to serve there with his two little children. Well, he had one child, at the, I think, at that time, and um, his wife. And it was very, uh, things were so bad that we wrote to him and said, you must come back. It's too dangerous for you. 
And my, my colleague, Suri Williams, when he was able to write back, wrote back and said, what do you mean come back? God sent me here. I can't leave now. You say it's not safe. The safest place is in the center of God's will. And my friend, my colleague, worked there for 15 years. He retired recently. And we were just, uh, we were just reflecting on the amazing impact he had on so many people, how God used him to have, have such an impact upon the people of that area. So he saw that God was king. Then we are told, um, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And then, of course, we are told in verse 4, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. All of this suggests that heaven is a glorious place and that God is great. So here you see a vision also then of the, of the, uh, of the greatness of God. And, and in the verses that follow, in the verse that follows, you see the response to this greatness of God. Verse 2, you see above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. Now the seraphim were probably, uh, the word means fiery. Uh, this is the only time they're mentioned. Probably one, some group of angels, people who are serving God uh, in heaven. And, uh, and so uh, these people each had six wings, we are told. And with three sets of wings, you see them doing three things which are appropriate responses to the greatness of God. Firstly, we are told, with two he covered his face. Now that you cover your face as an expression of respect and awe before God. When you realize that God is great, only God is great. No one else can compare. And so, you know, the book that talks so much about the boldness, twice it talks about how we can be bold to approach the throne of grace, Hebrews, also says in Hebrews 12, 28 and 29, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This tells us that if God is great, our response to him is a response of respect, of awe. You know, there are some people who view themselves as clients of God, who have given God a business assignment to fulfill. And if God doesn't fulfill it according to their satisfaction, they either give up on God or blame God. You know, we are people who should be going to hell. And God has given us a home in heaven for eternity. God is a God whose eyes are so pure that he cannot look at evil. And we are evil. And God has cleansed us and given us a place in heaven. And we complain over God not giving us something that we ask, which in his wisdom he has found is not the best thing to give us anyway. And so there is respect and awe as we stand before God. Then we are told with two he covered his feet. Now you cover your feet as an expression of humility. So here you see humility before God. When we realize the greatness of God, we cannot be proud or arrogant. It produces humility. Actually, the greatness of God is what, 
causes us not only to be humble but also to be happy. Because in Christianity, the happiest people are the humblest people. Because when you're humble, you realize how great God is. Humility is a, is a direct response to grace. You have been graced even though you didn't deserve it. So you're, now you're not trying to show how great you are. You are so enraptured by the greatness of God, by the goodness of God, by how kind and good he has been to you, that, um, that you, you, you no longer face focus on yourself but on others, on God and others. Arrogance, of course, fo focuses on oneself. Humility focuses on God and others. But the thing is that once we receive, once we accept that we are nothing and we receive God's goodness, it fills us with such a great joy that we have received this, that we become happy people. So humility and happiness go side by side. The happy person, the humble person, in the biblical sense of the term, is a happy person. You know, there are some people who are constantly saying, I deserve this, I deserve this, I deserve this, and they're striving for recognition. They feel they should have been given this assignment and not somebody else. You know, those people will never be happy because they might do something very well and all the people may appreciate what they have done. Just one person might just give some critical comment about it and they forgot all the praise that they received. And guess what they are going to be meditating on the next few days? The bad comment that that one person made. This world is an insecure place to look for recognition but there is the sense that God has accepted us and he has given us a job to do when we realize the greatness of God we are so thrilled by what he has done to us so the same thing that humbles us also makes us happy people then we are told that we too they flew now angels the word angel actually comes from angelos which means uh, messenger Angels are people who serve God. And the flying would be an expression of going here and there, doing the work of God. Uh, and, and once we are filled with a vision of the greatness of God, then we want to serve him. We are fired up with an ambition. You know, some people think of, of humble people as those who have their head to a side, always down on themselves and, and very gloomy. That's not humility. Humble people are those who have been fired by the greatness of God. And these people are people who want to serve him and serve him well. You know, um, the world motivates people through competition. That's not something that you find in the Bible. We don't com compete with each other in the church. But we have a greater motivation for excellence, for doing things well. And that is a vision of God's glory. And now we share that vision. And we share an ambition to see that vision, to, to see that glory expressed on earth. And then, because of that, what we do, we do as best as we can. So that we can truly reflect our identity as children of a great God. So, they, they are... Uh, all, they are filled with awe before God. They are humble before God. They serve him. And actually the particular aspect of service that they are performing right now is worship. As they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
the whole earth is full of his glory. It's very interesting that the word in the Hebrew and the Greek for worship also can mean service. And worship is the highest way in which we can serve God. So, uh, they are calling out about the holiness of God. And this brings us to the next attribute of God, which is that the whole earth is full of his glory. Uh, his omnipresence. He is everywhere. Now, this is what gives us confidence. As we go through life with all the difficulties, you know, some people look at a place and say, that's a God-forsaken place. But there is no God-forsaken place in God's universe. If, if you only open our eyes, we will realize that God is there. So if God calls us to a place, he is there in his glory. We may not see it uh, externally expressed, but we know that if we are obedient, we are bringing glory to God. And one day, that glory is going to be expressed. Even though right now, the whole situation may look very gloomy and, uh, and, uh, uh, and there is no splendor of glory in this place. There was a missionary who went from America to Liberia. He got his medical degree from Yale Medical School, then came to London University, got his doctor of uh, PhD in tropical medicine. His name was George Harley. And he went to uh, Liberia with his pregnant wife, and he had to walk 17 days with this pregnant wife to reach the place that he was going to serve. He set up a hospital, and he tried to be a witness for Christ. Every week he would, he would say, we have a service, please come for the service. For five years, he made that announcement, no one came for the service. And then his child, that child was born. When the child was five years old, he got sick and he died. The wife, of course, and the husband both were devastated. The wife couldn't come for the funeral. Actually, he, he had to conduct. He was the sole person who was doing everything for the funeral. He made a casket. He dug uh, a grave. And he put the body, the casket, down. And then he was overcome with sorrow. And he put his head onto the soil. And he began to weep. There was one person watching this, an old African person who was there. And this person came and, you know, he saw this man with the head down and he took his head up, looked into the face, put, gently put it back to the soil and ran to the village to say that the doctor weeps like us. The doctor weeps like us. The next Sunday, the hall was full with people who had come for the service. Something about that funeral made them open to the gospel. George Harley lived a total of 35 years in Liberia. He did an amazing service. He, uh, he did some pioneering research on malaria. He's the one who, who made the first map of Liberia. And he was given great honors for the service that he had done amongst those people. Right in the middle of gloom, the glory of God was at work. I don't know what type of place you will be going back to after this meeting. Maybe you're going home and wishing that you had a job. 
that you could go back to on Monday, but you won't. Maybe you are going back to a home where you wish that your child had come to Christ or your husband or your wife understands you. Maybe you're going back to a situation that looks hopeless, but don't call it God forsaken. The glorious God is there. And if you look, you will find that it is full of the glory of God. And so when you see that God is everywhere, another thing that happens to us is that it causes us to examine ourselves. Self-examination. If God is there, we better examine ourselves. Psalm 139 talks about God being everywhere. I can't run away from God. Wherever I go, he is there. And then uh, towards the end of that psalm, verses 23 and 24, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there is any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So when you realize that God is there, it causes you to see your sin. Um, I talked about a, a missionary, George Good. Um, I come from a Christian family, and I was known to be a very religious person. I won the scripture prize every year in school. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, everybody thought I was a fine Christian, except, of course, the people at home who knew uh, what a terrible temper I had. And one day I was very angry, and um, very angry with my brother, scolding him with a frown on my face. And in walks this godly pastor, the most Christ-like man I have met. And he walked in, and my angry face was miraculously transformed into an angelic smile. <laughs> and I realized that I couldn't live this hypocrisy for very long. And it was around that time that I called my mother, and my mother led me to Christ. So, there is a God, and he is holy. And when, when people saw him in the Bible, they saw their own sin, which is what happened to Isaiah. He said, woe is me, for I am lost, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, he saw his own unworthiness, and uh, my time is gone. Uh, but, but along with the un unworthiness that he saw, he also saw the forgiveness of God as there was a, a, a coal from the altar. Altars are places of sacrifice. There may have been a sacrifice on that altar. If so, there would be drops of blood that fall onto that coal. And it was a foretaste of what God was preparing to save the, save the world through Jesus Christ, through whose blood forgiveness was going to come to the whole world. And he had that um, that, that coal, blood-drenched coal, to come and alight on his lips. The very thing that he said was unclean, was cleaned by God. And that is the glory of the gospel, that God can clean unclean people. Is there anyone who has come here feeling that you are so unclean that God could never use you? Well, one thing that you cannot do is to out-sin God's grace. The Bible says that where grace, sin abounds, 
grace abounds much more. And so Isaiah heard the call of God and he responded. He said, here I am, send me. And of course, Isaiah didn't go to an easy life. Right at the call, he had this terrible news told about what he's going to be doing so that he has to say, how long, Lord, is this going to last? And so he had a difficult challenge. He persevered, possibly through four kings, through the life of four kings. And tradition tells us that he was martyred, probably sawn in two. Was it worth it? Well, 2,000 years after Isaiah died, here I am in Ireland preaching about the call of Isaiah. You go to a church at Christmas time and you'll hear the prophecies that Isaiah said about Jesus. You go to him to church during Passion Week and you hear the, pro the prophecies that Isaiah said about the death of Jesus. And still this call goes out. The harvest is plentiful, said Jesus, and the laborers are few. Who will go? Who will go to the marketplace? Who will go to the school system as teachers, as scripture union workers, as youth workers? Who will go? Who will go to the neighborhood as representatives of Jesus? Who will go to the unreached peoples of the world to share the gospel of Jesus? Jesus said, pray that the Lord of the harvest will send laborers to his harvest. And still the call rings out through history. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I pray that all of us would say, here am I, Lord, send me. And that we would respond and be the means through which this great God is going to be known by the people of this world. And that the vision of this great God is going to give us strength to persevere. God bless you. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.